All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here to worship together as your people, as your saints, called to an assembly to exalt you, to proclaim you as King and Lord and Savior, proclaim the truth of your word. We ask you to give us wisdom and insight to know the meaning behind the text and how to apply it as well, Lord, so you may be glorified in our church and even in our individual lives as we seek to make Christ known. Commit our time to you and trust that your people will be blessed and edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My mic sounds kind of weird. Is that better? Face gets a little loud. <laughs> Just checking. All right. Okay, we are in Daniel chapter 3. This can be a pretty daunting text. This is one of those texts where, that, that, that many a preacher dreams about preaching like, oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, don't mess this up, right? Most of the time, it's done in one message, but let's face it, I'm Jonathan, and there's no way we're going to get through, the, through all of this, um, this Lord's Day. But what I do want to do is read the chapter in its entirety and at least get started. I think setting in this particular text is very important and a lot of things are overlooked. And what I mean by that is we can concentrate so much on the conviction of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we actually can forget the other significant things that are happening. Also, when we consider their response and the way this entire thing plays out and the various uh, themes and repetition and characters involved. And so I definitely don't want to overlook King Nebuchadnezzar in this narrative as well. So much of today will be the setting itself, the occasion for what will transpire uh, for Daniel's three friends as they, are, as they face certain execution being cast into the fire. And so our sermon title today is Cast Them Into the Fire. For most of you, I don't have to explain that, but that is the order given. Um, and so let's begin our time by simply going through this text. Daniel chapter 3, I will read it in its entirety. Please hear the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. <laughs> then, the then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood up before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. But at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not, you think so far so good, right? But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, <laughs> psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, 
all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his Facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew these men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw and regarded these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So, so here we have, we have an episode dealing with 
King Nebuchadnezzar and three loyal servants of Yahweh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, as we know from Daniel chapter 2, verse 49, they were honored and elevated along with their friend Daniel over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So, as of now, they are in a pretty good place. And it's not always able, uh, easy to pinpoint the exact timing or dating of things, but I think we can rest assured that this episode occurs after the king's dream of this great statue that started with a head of gold and then descends all the way into feet made of iron and a clay mixture. It's no coincidence. So in terms of our mission today of actually setting the scene and understanding the context of what's really going on here, let us begin by saying that this chapter and what is described is filled with repetition. And all of these themes, I would say, without exception, have significance to them. But if you read, I mean, you heard me just read this, and it, and it really does take your breath away. You, keep, you just keep repeating the same things. And I think even a reading of the text with all this repetition is meant to have a particular physical effect on the reader when you read it out loud, almost to the point where you're just, there's, there's a sense in which it's exhausting when you get it all out of your system. But repetition in Daniel... Gold is mentioned seven times. Gold is an important theme. So as we go through this text, this Lord's Day and the next, underline, underline the repetition. Helps us understand the text better. The issue of fall, the issue of falling down. If you don't fall down in worship, you will fall into the fiery furnace is what is threatened. That is seven times. The word king as opposed to the name Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned 21 times. And certainly in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is bringing his, his position as king and ruler of Babylon to the forefront. He is asserting his authority, we would say a very pagan, unbelieving way. But in just kind of do a brief rabbit trail on that. We did discuss uh, a number of weeks ago uh, using Nebuchadnezzar as sort of a model of this, tr- of this reality that, that a man, that, that an individual can know a whole lot about God, that a lot can be revealed about God, and yet not come to a place where he trusts that God. We have found that Nebuchadnezzar has already been amazed at what Daniel's God knows, the true living God, the God of heaven, the God that will set up a kingdom that will never be defeated, never overcome, never given to another people, and never pass away. And Nebuchadnezzar is so amazed by this, not, not only does he change his mind about killing all of his counselors, but he actually elevates Daniel and his friends um, to be rulers among the Babylonian empire. So he's impressed already. That helps us understand the, 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 his temperament, his mindset, and how hard-hearted a man can be while knowing so much about God, even, even to the point of just being amazed by what he reveals, and even, even to the point where He understands that Daniel's God is not like other gods. There is something special and unique about the God of the Bible. So fall and king, people, nations, and languages dealing with the household, the oikumene, as it is put, of Babylon. Three times, the sevenfold list of government, and I think that there's a point to that too, where all of these positions within the Babylonian empire are named specifically and in order. Uh, listed three times, Nebuchadnezzar 15 times, furnace, right, the, the penalty for refusing to bow down and 
pay homage or worship this golden image 15 times. We read even about mighty men 12 times. The image, the image that is constructed in fashion and then, I don't know if it's on a big wheel cart or what, just brought out in front of the people and they are commanded to worship. So all these things, all these things with very significant repetition are in play. And so if we want to start out at the beginning, I don't know how many verses we'll get through, but Lord willing, we will see next Sunday and we will be able to gather together. But let's at least uh, begin our study in this, in this opening verse. So keep in mind what has just happened in chapter 2 because it's very important we link it. Opening verse, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and with its, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, once again, we don't know the exact timing of this. Um, some, some have said this happens before 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem because Judah keeps rebelling, or it has happened after. If it's, if it's happened after, this is significant because it could be a statement that Nebuchadnezzar is making toward the God of the people he just conquered. So keep that in mind as well. Okay. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe that this passage and some other well-known scholars have also added that this, this passage primarily focuses on his humanity. You are seeing him use his position as, as a despotic king in his own empire to make some pretty outrageous rules up against the backdrop of an outrageous dream that he just had not only uh, described to him but interpreted to him. We also see the way he reacts when he is defi defied. You kind of get this image in your head that Nebuchadnezzar is like this petulant eight-year-old child who was never told no. His face contorts. He becomes, he starts raging, as we like to say. He gets very angry and wrathful because three men, and he knows the God they worship because three men will not pay his image homage. So we get quite a glimpse of who he is, Nebuchadnezzar as the man, not just the king. And as we said before, shows again how much grace can be revealed to a man. And yet he, his stony heart remains, his unbelieving heart remains until the Spirit of God makes him new and brings him to life. Any of us would be in the same boat as he, as he was if the Spirit of God had not opened our heart, given us new life, given us understanding of the gospel. But it is amazing the proximity we can have to the life-giving truth and still remain in unbelief sends a very clear message to all of us this morning, and it's worth repeating often, that until the Spirit of God brings us life, we will never believe. We cannot conjure up belief. We cannot conjure up trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot conjure up the faithfulness and toward Him or the understanding of His Word until He, until he uh, creates that within us. But it's amazing what we can know and yet still remain in unbelief. And so here he is, continuing in his unbelief by his response towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the command to engage in idolatry. So I think it is pretty obvious, in laying out the context further, that he got this idea of, of, of building a statue from his previous dream. Like, I had a dream of a statue. Interpreted. Okay, here's the interpretation. You know what? I don't really like the way that statue looks. I'm going to build one of my own. Take that, right? It's about six cubits wide. Does it say 60 cubits high or nine cubits high? About doing the math, we're looking at about 
nine feet wide and somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 feet high. So if we're trying to think of this as a man, and it's not really clear if it's a big gold man to, to resemble the, the figure of a man in his dream. It would actually look very, it would actually look more like a, if you're familiar, if you're familiar with, with mythology, like a slender man almost. A very, a very tall, disproportionate dude made out of gold. Okay. That is not super clear from the text. But all we know is that this image has been crafted and he uses it to try to gain worshipful control over his, not, not so much his people, but his leaders, right? If you can get to your leaders, what, what's the next domino to fall? The people. If you can get your leaders to join with you in religious apostasy, the people are the next, the kingdom itself is the next domino to fall. So he is not content to be merely the head of gold. He is not content with what God has revealed. And I think that's a big lesson for each of us to ask ourselves. Are we content with what God has revealed? Are we latching on, leaning into what God has revealed to us about who we are, about his giftedness toward us, about how he has called us to serve his kingdom and to serve his purposes, and that I would say even applied from the statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, even understanding that we have an expiration date, that our time is limited and others will come after us to continue the work on this mountain, right? This stone cut out that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. We understand our time is limited. But he uses this idea of a head of gold to make an entire statue. And I think by that, he is communicating that he seeks to make his own kingdom a permanent kingdom. Especially since it's been made clear to him that the kingdom he rules now, made of gold, right? Glorious, beautiful, pure, majestic, attractive, will not endure forever. He is simply a part. He's one cog in the wheel of this household that God is building for his people to dwell in that will eventually give way to a new kingdom with salvation, right? Christ as its, Christ as its head, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, with salvation going forth to both Jew and Gentile. This is the kingdom we know that will last forever. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will not pass away. And so it makes perfect sense for Nebuchadnezzar though amazed at that information, amazed at the dream, to say, okay, look in the mirror one day and say, hey, I'm, who do I think I am? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the king. It's good to be king. And no God, what God, right? That's what he says here. What God will deliver you from my hand? He could think the same thing. What God dares tell me that my kingdom has an expiration date, right? But there's limits to my rule. What's he going to do to stop me? Well, such are the questions that unbelievers ask. What is God going to do to stop me? What, is, what, what can God do to thwart my ability to keep my kingdom from continuing to run and prosper and grow and last forever? That is what the goal is here, I believe. It's not going to give way to a new kingdom. Another thing to consider here and this is where the counterfeit comes in. A lot going on in this text, but especially counterfeit worship. That's, what I, that's one of the things I want to establish today is counterfeit worship. Going back to the issue of this statue, very tall statue, at least plated in gold, this image of gold. 
So the, the term for image here is, is very generic. That's why we have a difficult time discerning what it actually is. It's, you know, an image, an image of what? Even though his dream was, was that of a man. But what this gold does, first and foremost, is that gold is meant to display the, the power and the glory and strength of a king. Even in worship, even in Old Testament worship, the presence of gold points to the presence of God, right? There's something about gold that is, again, it, it, it lends itself to worship. It is shiny. It is, it is beautiful. It is glorious when the light hits it. It is sought after. Like even the Ark of the Covenant, right? What did the Ark of the Covenant, what was it there for? For the presence of God. Where the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, dwelt between the cherubim, the mercy seat, they called it. Right? Fully covered in pure gold. Right? An object of great beauty. I think Nebuchadnezzar understands that. One thing that is put forth in terms of what this object is, and I think it's, it's important in terms of how we understand this counterfeit worship that Nebuchadnezzar is facilitating, is that given its dimensions, right, think of the Washington Monument. What do we call that? An obelisk, right? Not just a monument or a tower. It's an obelisk. And in ancient paganism, and it's not limited to one culture. We find it in Egypt. We find it in Babylon. We find it in many different... Uh, Many different ancient cultures, and some of those ruins are still around to this day. But obelisks were, were closely tied to worship, at least for a couple of reasons. One. First was that an, an obelisk was meant to perform sort of as a stairway to heaven, right? We've made a big deal about this issue of a temple, right? The temple being the place where God and man meet, right? And so when this mountain... The stone that's cut out without hands becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. What's the idea there? That the whole earth becomes a garden temple where man can dwell with God in unending, unhindered fellowship forever. That's what we're all working toward. That is, what, that is why we preach the gospel. That is why we keep our hands busy and work for the glory of God. We are, we are working in the Lord's vineyard because he uses us. He, pres, he, he prescribes the means. That so we are workers in his vineyard, work at, workers in his garden, preaching the gospel faithfully so that the whole world becomes the dwelling place between God and man. And I would submit to you today that this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is counterfeiting. He is using this particular image, whether it's an obelisk or not, to provide a meeting place between God and men. And he is doing this on his own terms. And that is the fundamental, one of the first fundamentals of counterfeit worship, is we simply worship God according to our own terms. We rewrite the rules. We rewrite the playbook. And typically what happens, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, as we will soon see, is he is taking the, many of the same, the same images, the, even the music, and he's fashioning them into his own stylized version of worship so that loyalty is given not to the God of heaven, who has revealed these mysteries to him, but so that Babylon is given loyalty toward, so that Babylon itself receives worship and him by extension. Right. But clearly he's saying Babylon must endure. Babylon isn't going anywhere. And so this obelisk, this, this image, if you will, is meant to portray this meeting place or pointing to the presence of God. I would say much in the same fashion that we understand the Ark of the Covenant. All Nebuchadnezzar is doing is taking certain, certain prescriptions of worship and then putting his own twist on them. 
So I think as we see what's going on here, we understand the very challenge that emerges to the church today. Do we not on the daily, and sometimes even on Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day, we face a challenge to worship God according to the way He has prescribed in His Word, what we call the regular principle of worship. We worship God on His terms, not on our own terms. We don't bring things, we don't bring strange fire to the altar to offer to God, even with the best of intentions. We worship according to what God says and to His commands. And I think that's all Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's using this to point a, his own way to God. Here's another one. In pagan worship, an obelisk or these towers were meant to, con- they were thought to convey the dead to the afterlife. Now think of, think, of, think of that. What do we preach when we proclaim the gospel? We proclaim the resurrection from the dead. We proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is an Old Testament documentation of a perversion of what the Old Testament promises look forward to. Resurrection unto eternal life. And so even by having this here, Nebuchadnezzar is in his own way pointing away for his people from death to life in his own perverse way. And if, even if you were, uh, you know, either Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is a problem. This is a serious problem. This is perverse worship. This is counterfeit worship. This is what we call idolatry. Furthermore, we see that Nebuchadnezzar in doing this, he says, he has caused this, he has caused this statue to stand. If you look at the opening verse again, he says, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the word he set it up, in the Hebrew it uses what is called the Hithil. Now, now, why this is significant is this statue stands on Nebuchadnezzar's own authority and efforts. It literally means he caused the statue to stand, and this phrase is used nine times. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for this. He's the brains behind this operation. And what's interesting, again, is this strikes against the very vision that was revealed to him. This over and over, this over and against the image that God has called has caused to fall down. Go back to the dream. What happened there? You see this, this man, this statue. What happens? The stone is hurled toward it. And what, it, what does it do? It causes the statue to fall down. It causes the statue to crumble. So it's hard to separate uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's intentions from that vision. This seems like a response to what, what God has clearly revealed to him, and he's rebelling against this, this revelation. He causes this to stand up, when in fact only God can cause a kingdom to stand, and only God has the authority to bring a kingdom down. It's on his sole prerogative. He sets this image up in the plain of Dura, it says, in the province of Babylon. And this, uh, this expression, Dura, it turns out is not limited to just one locale, as Leupold states, is a rather common name in Mesopotamia, being a name that is applicable, now this is key, listen to this, is applicable to any place which is enclosed by a wall. So we're, we're seeing an, a, like an open plain and yet has enclosures on it. And this is not the only place that we know of. It's, 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 a, it's a more generic name. But this is the kind of setting that is, that is being presented to us. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is very deliberate. 
And then verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the, the satraps. So here we are breaking down the government. So, so, so note, this is not just, this. don't think of like this plane covered with all the citizens of the Babylonian empire, right? He's getting to his leaders first, the bureaucrats, right? The governors, the treasurers. I mean, think of it in terms of, think of it in terms of uh, Washington, D.C., right? We got we got the president, we got the senate, we got the house of representatives, we got the IRS, right? we got the feds, we got everyone involved, because we got to get everyone under one banner, we got to get everyone to agree on what is happening here. So Nebuchadnezzar is really serious about this, so he brings everyone in, the text says. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. This, see what's going on here. This is, this is amplified in the book of Revelation, right? Causes the, the small and great, rich and poor, causes everybody. He causes everybody to get a mark, right? Think about the first century, challenge of the first century. You can worship Jesus. Just give that pinch of incense, that little compromise, pay homage. Let everyone know that Caesar is Lord and you can go worship your Jesus. But this is a test of loyalty. A test that, if failed, is punishable by death. So in this sense, Nebuchadnezzar ends up being a very real beast among the assembly of his leaders. And so let's try to break down who all these, who all these people are. First, we have the satraps or satraps, rulers of large divisions of the empire. Okay, Sort of like governors. Think about a governor of a state. They're, they're, they're the overseers, of course. Nebuchadnezzar, one man. He has his limitations in time and space. Can only be one place at one time. So he has the satraps, rulers of large divisions of the empire. Then he has, depending on your translations, and translating this was wild, especially from the Hebrew, because different, different translations of the Old Testament carry with it different words and different functions. So we'll do the best we can. So you also have, you also have the prefects, or deputies, officials directly accountable to the satraps. Okay. So you have these sort of like, it gets, first it's like it's big, it's almost like on the federal level, then you kind of get on the state level, and then you get on the more local level or, or, or county level. You see this, this breakdown and division in the geography of the empire and what people are responsible for. You have the governors, administrators of smaller provinces, and then what else you have? You have the, the, the counselors, or judges, depending on your translation. Then going down, you have the treasurers. Well, we know what treasurers are. That's probably the most obvious one. What is a treasurer? Treasurer is someone who handles the money. So even the people in charge of the money are there. And then you have, reading on in the text, you have the magistrates. What are the magistrates? Think of that as a local sheriff, right? People who enforce the law that's given. So, so you have pretty much every person who is responsible for the exercise of power. Everyone involved who is an extension of the arm of King Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone's representative. Everyone is facing one another. Everyone, everyone is able to look at each other and say, oh, that person's represented? That person's represented? Oh, we have a governor? Oh, we have a congressman? Oh, we have a senator? We even have sheriffs, local assemblymen. We have counselors. We even have the money people. Wow, everyone's here. This must be a very significant event. And certainly it was. 
So if you were there, you'd be looking around, wow, what, what's, what's happening here? The dedication of this image. And then it repeats again. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the, ca- the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces. Don't forget the, rule, the rulers of, of the provinces. These are all the other bureaucrats probably in cities, right? in charge of cities. And they were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I think this reference is something very important. All the repetition, not only is it kind of silly, but what I think this points to is this issue of control. Whenever, especially whenever we talk about counterfeit worship, even if it's not in, in the corporate setting. But remember, there is always a cultus. There's always going to be an object of worship. There's always going to be an ultimate in society. And this is not the only place that that is expressed. We, I think we all know and believe that. In other areas of, all other areas of society are going to somehow express what that ultimate is, the supreme object of worship and loyalty. And we find that especially in secular, like, unbelieving culture, wherever you find unbelief prevail. You find draconian laws, you find anti-Christian laws, but you find you, you, you find an administration of control freaks who have to control every area of your life. And I was talking about this very thing in, in, in our baptism class this morning. What's the main difference? Because Jesus is to have control over every area of life. The difference is that he has a right to. He has all rule, all authority, all sovereignty. He has the right to command that loyalty and faithfulness and trust and obedience and everything that comes along with it. That is why when that happens, when you find a society where that flourishes, you find a generally peaceful society, a society at rest, a society of abundance and generosity, because Christ is the ultimate. But if something, if anything else is the ultimate, you are going to tend toward chaos. Any kind of order will be at best temporary, but it will also be a counterfeit kind of order. But this is what I think this repetition, one of, one, of the, one of several things that is meant to point to us, is the absolute control that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to foist upon his leadership. It has to be this way. Let's repeat this. Okay, we're going to play the music. Be ready. Get ready to bow down. Oh, that's not my tempo. Let's start over. Okay, here we go. The psalter, the lyre, the flute, the trigon, the sackbut, whatever, whatever uh, version of scripture you have. Let's do it again. We'll go down the line and bow down. You see how maddening something like that would be. But this is, this is the order. This is the control that is demanded. And whenever you have this kind of control outside the lordship of Christ, you're going to have this awful combination of chaos and enslavement. You're not going to have liberty. You're not going to have joy or freedom. This is something that is more reminiscent of Stalinist Russia. This, this absolute control over every area of life where, where those, you never know where there's going to be a turncoat. You never, you're always suspicious of who's not loyal, who's not going to be obedient. Reminds me of when you guys are students of history, there's that, there's that story of Stalin when he gives a speech and he ends his speech and everyone stands up clapping and everyone's looking around, okay, when do we stop clapping? Who's going to be the first one to stop clapping because that, that guy's going to get sent to Siberia? Can't, got to keep clapping. 
God can't, can't show any kind of crack in the armor of your supposed loyalty, even though you probably despise this man. But you fear him so much, you don't want to be questioned as disloyal or compromised in any fashion. Otherwise, you'll get disappeared. And in this case, you'll get thrown into the fiery furnace. Those are the threats. Such is what happens when counterfeit worship prevails in a culture with all of its counterfeit gods, and it need not be limited to one. In this case, the loyalty is toward, in a sense, toward the party with Nebuchadnezzar at its head. Babylon forever. And all he asks is a simple show of loyalty. All he asks, what harm is there? Just a little bit of compromise? You don't want to lose your life? Just when the music plays, just bow down. And you know, maybe you didn't hear me the first time, but I'll, I'll give you a second chance. I'll be mad, but I'll give you a second chance. And so here's that setting. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given on peoples, nations, and men of every language. But at the moment you hear the sound, here we go again, of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And it is, it is thought that while they were being assembled out here, the fires were already going. The furnaces were already lit. And one of the indications is, is that Nebuchadnezzar then tells, tells his, uh, his strongmen, hey, make these seven times hotter, not hot enough. Tells us that these, these furnaces were probably already lit up. They were just, they were ready to receive any detractors, anyone who didn't want to play ball, anyone who didn't want to engage in this silly act of idolatry. You're walking out there, hey, what are those, what are those furnaces for? What's going on? Oh yeah. The king will have a way of putting your mind straight. And I really do believe that Nebuchadnezzar, after he was able to think about it, and we don't know how much time has elapsed, but he is offended by this prophecy that has been made crystal clear to him, that has amazed him, because it signals the temporary nature of his kingdom. And so he perverts the true, he perverts worship, gives a twist on it, gives a spin on it, makes it his own, and then makes people pay homage to this statue because in so doing, they are basically saying, yes, Babylon will endure forever. Long live the king, right? Oh, king, live everlastingly. Live forever. That's exactly what they're saying. James Jordan points out something very, very interesting. He actually, he actually connects the type of musical instruments being played based on the sound they make to this hierarchy of Nebuchadnezzar's rulers. Just going down this, he talks about the first is the horn or the trumpet. Referring to the satraps, the, 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 the rulers of the large divisions of the empire, those are the loudest. Those are the most commanding. Right? You hear a trumpet blast, a lot of the time a trumpet blast is it's, it's solitary. You hear the trumpet and then you don't hear anything else. It's the most commanding. And then you have the stringed in instruments, a lot of stringed instruments. You have, a full, you have a full rock band here, practically. You have the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, stringed instruments providing the harmony. Right, the supporting cast, referring to the deputies, governors, judges, treasurers, the ones that keep order. And then you have the magistrates. Again, some, some would say that 
drums are omitted from certain translations, but there were actually drummers here. That's how, guys, that is how we know. Take this key takeaway today. The presence of drums is how we know that this was ungodly worship, right? Because drums are worldly. Drums, you hear the drums, you just want to go sin and do worldly pagan things. That's, that clues us into this. <laughs> Got to keep those drums out. But the drums, uh, Jordan puts forth, refers to the sheriffs or the magistrates, that they are sort of the gatekeepers of order. The drum, what does the drum do? Establishes rhythm, keeps everyone in line, right? You mess that up, the whole band falls apart. Here's another thing to keep in mind, and this kind of lends itself to the counterfeit, is that even the very things, the very activity that, he, that Nebuchadnezzar is orchestrating and leading here, he is borrowing from Israelite temple worship. This is kind of what's getting to our, getting to our main point as to what Nebuchadnezzar is up to. And following then the resolute response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because we could ask, what's the big, what's, what's the big deal? But we see judges, these judges and counselors, a good, a good guide for this is uh, 1 Chronicles 23. The Levites, right, the, the priests, the priestly family, the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward, and their number by census of men was 38,000 of these 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So you have judges, advisors, counselors, right? Overseers. 6,000 were officers and judges. And 4,000 were gatekeepers, sheriffs, right? Keeping order, keeping rhythm. 4,000 were praising the Lord with instruments, which David made for giving praise. See, this will look, if you were, if you were either Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, pick your favorite guy, this should look familiar. Wait a second, wait just a darn minute. They're, they're hijacking our worship. They're doing, this, they're doing something very similar to what we're doing, only they're praising the wrong God. And I would submit, too, that it's not as if Nebuchadnezzar is ignorant to think that Jerusalem is constantly giving him trouble, that Daniel is one of the highest officers in the Babylonian Empire, and somehow Nebuchadnezzar is not privy to how worship is carried out in Judah. We should think he's totally familiar with this. It would not be strange to think so. But here he is borrowing. I think what this is important is that it has been clearly stated, clearly revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, especially with Daniel and his three friends in his midst, is that it is, it is Israel. It is the Jews who are to perform as priests within these empires. Babylon among them. The king, though appointed by God, is not meant to stand as a priest or a worship leader. So what he is doing here, he is usurping the position of priest and making his own worship. It's almost like Melkor in the Sil Silmarillion. Right? He, hears, he hears the beautiful heavenly music of Eru Luvatar, and then he's like, I'm going to make my own music. I'm going to do my own thing. Right? And then it's just a cacophony. It's not the real thing. It's a perversion, try though he may, to make his own music. Though he can try to imitate it, he cannot duplicate it. And it is to his downfall. So you have these same positions. In 1 Chronicles 9.26, their relatives in their villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers who were Levites were in an office of trust 
and were over the chambers and over the treasuries of the house of God. I think, again, I think it's no coincidence that here is an imitation, a cheap imitation of, of, of the Levites, of this priestly class. They watched over the treasuries of the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them, and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. So you see all of the, you, you see a, almost like a mirror image, right? The corresponding positions that is within the Levitical class. You have the sheriffs, you have the treasurers, you have the worship leaders, you have the music, you have chief officers, and now you have this pagan expression of it. Now, why is this significant in terms of music? Right? I think this is really important culturally. Even throughout history, what, 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 is, what, is, what does music serve? What cause does it serve? It brings people together. Right? Throughout history, music has brought people together. We, we read these, these glorious, beautiful descriptions of, of worship in the book of Psalms. Right? Clap your hands. We did that even though we're Baptists this morning. Clap your hands. All you people, shout to God with the voice of triumph. Right? But there's this corporate activity, and in praising God, the, the music and the songs bring the people of God together so that they worship Him with one voice. There is, something, there, there is something about the ability of music to do that that nothing else can do throughout cultures. I really have no idea what's going on with music today. I don't see Taylor Swift as a uniting factor whatsoever. But several decades ago, yeah, music, kinda ha music just had a way of, for good or for ill, speaking to the culture, leading the culture, guiding the culture, heavily influencing, influencing the culture, but above all, uniting the culture. Because music was never neutral. It always preached a worldview. Many of you listen to music and you think, oh, I don't, really, I don't really listen to the words. I just listen to the beat or I listen to the, the, the face-melting guitar solos. Well, you should listen to the words because everyone is preaching something. And in the same sense, true biblical worship preaches something, preaches the glory of God, His right to rule, His presence, His goodness, mercy, justice, everything. We learn we probably learn more about God in the songs we sing than in the sermons we listen to. And you could listen to 10 times more hours of sermons than music, but, what, but when, for some reason, when you listen to something that is put to a melody, harmony, and rhythm, there's something about that that causes you to remember. And that's not a bad thing. But I think the main presence of the music here is seen as a catalyst, and Nebuchadnezzar knows this, to unite the people in this cause of falling face down and worshiping this image. So that's what we have here. And I think getting to the main point, here is what I believe that Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to build here his own holy mountain. He is trying here to construct his own mountain that fills the earth. And he includes all his governors, all of all, anyone in authority, start with them, bring the others in. But he comes out to a plane of of Dura, and he's essentially making here a counterfeit temple. Even Dura speaks to a walled area, should, should bring our minds to the walls of a temple, an enclosed space where God meets man. That's what he's doing. It's just counterfeit, and that's what makes counterfeit worship so dangerous, is that it looks like the real thing. 
And I think a huge application for believers today is to be able to be discerning enough, to be in the Word enough, to walk with God closely so that we are able to discern the difference between the real and the counterfeit. Because I guarantee you, not everyone's going to notice. We face the very same thing in our culture. We hardly care about God enough to know when we're listening to something that is presenting a false God, something other than the God of Scripture. But guess what? Truths about the God of the Bible are always going to be sprinkled in, but it's going to be so twisted we can't stand back and say, oh yeah, that's the Lord I know. That's the Jesus I believe in. It's the same thing. Borrow a couple things from a, from a nation you conquered, twist it, and say, that's God. Behold your God, this statue. This is, this is the meeting place between God and man. This is the temple. This is the true mountain which will fill the earth. I just got to get my leaders behind me. And so if you're standing there, whether it's in the 21st century or on the plain of Dura, this is something that is unspeakably blasphemous. This is outrageous. And you got to ask yourself, who's going to stand against this? And depending on the period of time in which you're living, the consequences will definitely vary. They may not be the same. But here, guys, it's death. It's death by fire. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say. Cast them into the fire. These people do not deserve to live. Don't they appreciate what I'm trying to do? But make, make no mistake, this is not merely ignorance on Nebuchadnezzar's part. This is arrogance. This is spiritual arrogance. And he comes on the plane to try to pass this off as legitimate. And as much as it looks like the real thing, it is a patent counterfeit. And all this repetition found an interesting quote in Jordan's book by, by a theologian last name Avalos. says this, when humans act as automatons, they become subjects of comedy. So when you read this over and over again, there is something comical about it. It's hard not to laugh. You're like, why the repetition? Because the repetition, of course, points to not only the control of the king, but it points to the fact that those who are present on, on the plane out there have stopped thinking. They're going through the motions like much of what characterizes our worship today. They're just going through the motions. All right, music, bow down. Right? And it's on key. It's on, it's on cue. This is, note, note that this is all planned. That when the music, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, so all over the empire, that at the moment, right, at the moment, it's all scheduled, all planned. When this happens, you bow down, and if you don't, you die. And another thing to think through, we never know as believers when we are going to be caught in a situation like this. Sometimes we call it wrong place at the wrong time, but it is divinely orchestrated, especially in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They probably didn't know what was going on. Up oh, here we are. Now what are we, we going to do? We have been ushered in to a counterfeit temple with counterfeit worship and a counterfeit God, which the king desires to make into a counterfeit mountain. You never know when that test is going to come your way. I think sometimes we try to plan for it. Sometimes we, we act like it's never going to happen. But I think that there is, there is in the mind of a Christian maybe this assumption that we can always prepare for this. That we can always prepare for it. So pray tell. I know some of us, I can neither confirm nor deny that some of us in here are armed. But what happens when unexpectedly 
two dozen people with AK-47s come in here. What are we going to do? Suddenly we're on the spot. And all we got to do is deny Christ. Then what are we going to do? So much for preparation. So much for a viable exit. You move your gun down. That's our trial by fire, so to speak. But that's what they're facing. The question is, what do we do? What will we do? But another thing to consider with all this repetition, with all this, this comedy of errors regarding worship, I think by way of application, what we're faced here when it comes to counterfeit worship, and we'll hit the, the rest of the text next week, of course, but we've talked about not only this, this false worship, which is expressed by rote, right, by being an automaton, There's, it doesn't really grab the affections of the heart, right? You also have this issue of counterfeit worship desiring to control everything about your life. We've talked about that. Again, the repetition. But also, I think, too, pomp and circumstance. There is a sense in which counterfeit worship, in, a counterfeit, in, 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 in counterfeit godliness, run by a secular, unbelieving culture, there is a desire for pomp and circumstance. Think of all, think of all the parades that get announced. How many of those parades are actually godly? How many of those parades actually celebrate marriage? How many, of those, how many of those parades celebrate the birth of a child, right? How many of those parades celebrate the lordship of Christ? How many? Difficult to think of. But there is a, a braggadocio, if you will. There is this announcing it from the hilltops when it comes to unbelief. They want, they want their worship to be known. They want to make it difficult for us to hide for ourselves from being exposed to it. They want us to see it in broad daylight. There is a pomp and circumstance. So as silly as this is, and we look at those things and we see silliness, right? What's with the parade? Why are you guys celebrating a culture of death and yet they demand to be put in the spotlight? They demand to be celebrated. There's a pomp and circumstance to it that I must be noticed. There's always... Songs to unite them, we've talked about that, that unifying factor of music, even though it's, especially though it's anti-Christian. Guys, all of this is an act of worship. All of this points to a particular view of God. All of this exposes a particular loyalty to, an, to an, a supreme object, to an ultimate. Think about this, there's always going to be lieutenants and tattletales, Right? sycophants who are seeking to have their loyalty rewarded. Oh, king, oh, king. You think of this, like, this, this poindexter who's 90 pounds soaking wet. Oh, king Nebuchadnezzar, look at them. They're not worshiping your image. People who are always seeking the spotlight, people who are always seeking promotion, it's clear, but they are upset at the prominence of the Jews in their own kingdom. These outsiders, these strangers and sojourners, what are they doing here? So you have this counterfeit worship full of self-ingratiating sycophants who only seek their own promotion. And then you have attached to this false worship severe punishments. You know, there's no, I mean, we're used to citations, right? Turns out you preach in the wrong area of Manitou, you might get fined. But there's no burning pit in Manitou Springs or in Acacia Park where we're going to get thrown into if we don't, if we don't worship the idols of today. But there's a severe punishment attached to this as well. By the way, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So punishment is severe and 
immediate. And the thing is, guys, and that and more is what we're up against. That's, that's what we must have the conviction to stand against. Is this false worship? Because that's what culture is, right? Worship externalized. Culture is going to be a reflection of its ultimate, of what we value the most. And so as we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response, right? again, Daniel seems to not be around. Maybe he's out on mission or something, but he's not around. And so it seems like Nebuchadnezzar takes advantage. I think that's another big thing of false worship. It takes advantage of the absence of accountability. No one's checking Nebuchadnezzar's behavior. Nobody's checking his push for idolatry. No one's checking this counterfeit temple that he's demanding be given allegiance to. And so I think with for us next time, we will see the, I think, the gracious, the humble, yet convicted response of these three godly men who refuse to compromise. But I think just in setting, in setting the table here, we have to know what we face, the kind of just out there, in-your-face ungodliness that continues to proliferate, that continues to gain traction, especially from our own government. And yet, what do we do when it threatens us? And I think the text going forward provides a valuable lesson for that. But for now, just understand that it's here, it's real, and it is a call for believers in Jesus Christ to respond accordingly. So with that, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again uh, for our time in your word. Just to understand the context and the initial verses of the passage. Uh, So much happening, so much so much noise, so much repetition, and Lord, we even know what it's like to be uh, believers in a society where there are many other Christians, and where our culture has been obviously affected by a Christian presence, and yet to see a seed ground and to see so much compromise to where a counterfeit of true religion can come forth and plant its flag. And Lord, we understand we do not live in the Babylonian, the Babylonian Empire, but we do live in a time of, of, uh, of great testing, of great apostasy, of great counterfeits. Um, we also live in a time, Father, of great opportunity where we can take a stand for the gospel, continue to be faithful Christians, continue to be a faithful church as we serve in your true temple. Lord, to daily partake of the grace that you give so that we are never tempted away to this false temple, this closed place, this closed plain where idols are put up, are caused to be put up, and where every counterfeit is glorified and where they're, they're, that respect and allegiance is demanded. Lord, we, we see the opportunity and joy of, of bringing true gospel impact to our own city and to be faithful stewards of that. Lord, teach us to honor You in all things, to continue to rest in the finished work of Christ, to, to never fudge when it comes to the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of our Lord's sacrifice and the, 
empowering of His Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we are tempted into idolatry when in our hearts we, we question the sufficiency of what You have given to us and what You've done for us. Keep our hearts from straying to that and let us cling to You. And Lord, though we never know when another Nebuchadnezzar may arrive and doesn't even take that to be tempted away into compromise, but we do ask when the moment of testing comes, we would be faithful. We would be found faithful. True followers of Christ who have, who have truly been born again and who know that it is better to walk upright with integrity and to hold fast to our confession and even pay for it with great cost rather than to, to live and to experience what seems like blessing and live at the same time a life full of compromise. Lord, spare us from that. Keep our eyes focused on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We commit that all to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day that you've made, and thank you for the opportunity that we get together together as your church and your family. We come today before you to reflect and confess of our sins. Your word tells us to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy with the gospel, and we have not obeyed your commandments or loved you with all of our hearts. Forgive us for the times that we have forgotten your promises and lose sight of your faithfulness and your grace in our lives. We ask you to cleanse our thoughts and our hearts that we might magnify your name and walk in holiness and righteousness before you. We rejoice in your salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. You mentioned uh, for, for our call to worship this morning and to remind you guys that uh, you're here this morning and you confess Christ as Lord and Savior and trusting Him alone for salvation. And those of you who are visiting today, if you have uh, done the same, received Christ, and trusting in Him alone, you've expressed that publicly in baptism, and you've uh, told us your salvation testimony, you've confirmed all of that, uh, it is with joy that we invite you now to the Lord's table. So please come forward. Just a brief pastoral exhortation that happens from time to time. Um, and I would say, I would encourage you, especially uh, families, um, you have kids who are believers too, who confess Christ, that go out of your way either the morning before you leave for corporate worship, or I would say even the night before, um, make it a point to uh, prepare your hearts with your families for this occasion. We do this every Lord's Day because we believe it is special, right? It's, it's a way in which we express to one another our participation in the new covenant. And by doing that the night before with your family, you are able to prepare your hearts and the hearts of your families together um, and remind yourselves afresh that you can come to the table of the new covenant with your consciences sprinkled clean, uh, knowing that your sins are forgiven, right? That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that this can be an occasion uh, for rejoicing together with the family of God. So with that, I will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim his death together. Amen. All right, always a joy to worship together uh, on the Lord's Day. In keeping with our sermon theme, there is pizza fresh from the furnace uh, in back, so please stay, especially those who are visitors today, please stay and enjoy a meal with us. Um, other than that, if you guys need any prayer or counsel or encouragement, Jeremy and I are happy to uh, serve you all. Benediction comes from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.